How far have we progressed over the last three decades? The first thing we have to look for when analysing the forces of progress is the data on global poverty. In spite of adding another 2 billion to the Earth's population since 1990, the poverty headcount ratio has consistently fallen at $5.50, $3.20 and $1.90 a day. Those estimates are expressed in international dollars using 2011's PPP conversion rates as national incomes need to be converted into an international currency that buys the same amount of goods in every country across the globe. This means that the below figures account for different price levels in different countries, as well as for inflation. Simply put, since the price is much lower in poorer countries than in richer ones, a dollar in New Delhi will get you much further than a dollar in Stockholm. This metric allows for a very straightforward interpretation. Globally, there are fewer and fewer people who live below all three measurements of global poverty. See figure 1.1. Today, Less than 10% of the world's population lives in extreme poverty, with less than $1.90 per day. Their absolute number has fallen from 1.9 billion in 1990 to about 736 million in 2015, despite the increased population. Counting the share of people living below some internationally agreed-upon line is intuitive, but such a method fails to capture the intensity of poverty. Not all individuals with income levels slightly below the poverty line are as poor as individuals with incomes far below the poverty line. Bearing this in mind, an index measuring the intensity of poverty has therefore been developed, the Poverty Gap Index. Since 1990, the global poverty gap also fell from $442 billion to $160.85 billion in 2013 our world in data. If judged by measures of both poverty headcount and poverty intensity, there is much cause for optimism based on our previous track record. See figure 1.2. The systemic eradication of poverty, propelled by impressive growth rates and only briefly interrupted by the global financial crisis in 2009, has also had a favourable impact on increasing total global life expectancy at birth. See figures 1.3 and 1.4. Gross domestic product, GDP, growth, not only reduces poverty and increases life expectancy, but also has a favourable impact on 52 indicators which make up a relatively new and unique measure of progress called the Social Progress Index. Professor Michael Porter of Harvard University defines it as the capacity of a society to meet the basic human needs of its citizens, establish the building blocks that allow citizens and communities to enhance and sustain the quality of their lives and create the conditions for all individuals to reach their full potential. If one plots more than 145 countries on a scatter diagram, where the x-axis represents GDP and the y-axis covers the social progress index, composed of 52 indicators of well-being, we can observe that it is next to impossible to significantly raise social progress without per capita GDP, in PPP terms, reaching $15,000. Yes, there is variance in terms of how well countries convert their GDP levels into social progress, 
And there is also the law of diminishing returns, postulating that each additional unit of GDP growth generates less and less well-being. However, it remains certain that without a positive growth environment and rising GDP levels across the globe, there would be no big improvements, especially for those at the bottom of the socio-economic ladder. GDP is not destiny, but only when the basic material fulfilments of life have been satisfied. However, there is still much room to grow globally, and GDP should not be revoked as a means of understanding progress, but it needs to be complemented with additional measures of progress. Not only has there been an overall increase in global life expectancy at birth, but we have also witnessed a gradual reduction in the global inequality of life expectancy at birth. This measure reflects the difference in overall health that has been narrowing since the early 1990s. These patterns are affected by wars, violence and disease. If a person is born in a country with a life expectancy of 70, they can expect to live until 70. Figure 1.4 shows that the greatest progress has been achieved within low-income countries due to improved access to healthcare, immunisation, safe drinking water and sewage. It is also important to consider the reduced number of violent deaths over the last couple of decades. Regardless of the existence of many fragile states, as evidenced by the Fund for Peace's Fragile State Index, there is a marked decline in the number of worldwide battle deaths per 100,000 people, encompassing all sorts of conflict. This is brilliantly captured in Steven Pinker's 2011 book The Better Angels of Our Nature and expanded further in a companion book Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism and Progress. Empathy, morality, self-control and reason have gradually superseded, but not totally eliminated, predatory violence, revenge, sadism and various ideologies that legitimise violence. In sum, the average 1990 gap in life expectancy between low- and high-income countries amounted to 24.6 years, a number which narrowed to 17.3 in 2017. All of this should not invoke a sense of complacency on the part of governments, international organisations, corporations, the media or civil society. In spite of impressive results, there is a still long journey ahead in tackling poverty and health inequality. Still, we should collectively take pride in our achievements and confidently keep the pace of progress in the years to come. Besides having played a crucial role in global poverty reduction, as measured only in monetary terms, global economic growth also coincided with and enabled higher educational attainment as well as the satisfaction of basic necessities. Educational attainment has increased markedly since 1990. Figure 1.5. Pre-primary, primary, secondary and tertiary education gross enrolment ratios, GER, have all gone up. GER is a statistical measure used in the education sector to determine the number of students enrolled in school at several different grade levels. The same can be said about the global literacy rate of the total male and female population over the age of 15. The greatest sense of empowerment has been felt among women in developing countries, where the gap between the male and female literacy rate has been steadily closing. 
figure 1.6. Furthermore, access to basic modern life necessities, such as electricity, potable water, and internet, has steadily climbed upward, with internet usage simply skyrocketing, figure 1.7. Over the last three decades, we can also observe a constant rise in the number of democracies versus the number of autocracies. The spread of democracy came in several important waves, with the most recent one triggered by the breakdown of communism. More importantly, the rising number of democracies has been followed by a rapid increase in the absolute number of people living in countries with democratic regimes, as well as their bigger share as a percentage of the world's population, figures 1.8 and 1.9. For a simple historical comparison, one should note that in the early 1800s, only 1% of the world's population lived in democracies. Why is economic growth and poverty alleviation so important to democracy? Economic growth and the progress generated by it make the world safer for democracy. Once sustainable and prosperous democratic regimes are established, they are less likely to fight each other, according to democratic peace theory. In strong democracies, people tend to be wary of engaging in and escalating conflict since the stakes are higher and potential losses operate as a powerful deterrent. This link has been meticulously explained by renowned political scientist Adam Pshiversky and his colleagues. Democracies are unlikely to be established in poor countries. They are more likely to emerge in countries at middle income levels. On the other hand, democracy is less likely to succeed if a dictatorship exists in a country with a high level of per capita income. If democracy reaches and stabilizes an income threshold of $6,055, it is fairly safe from a reversal to autocracy. At the same time, more than 40 democracies in poorer countries have collapsed since 1946. This leads us to the conclusion that affluent democracies can survive wars, riots, and political scandals. Among the factors affecting the survival of democracy, such as education, income distribution, political institutions, and power relations, income plays the dominant role. And the rate of growth is not what matters the most. The level of income sustains democracy. Greater overall wealth and democracy have had a beneficial role in keeping authoritarian impulses at bay and promoting democratic governance. Nonetheless, they do not protect us from man-made disasters. Despite the recent crisis of confidence in certain established democracies and democratic backsliding in countries such as Turkey and Brazil, there are still many reasons for optimism. Although democracies possess certain built-in flaws, such as inclinations to populism, and despite the existence of alternatives, such as the new model of digital authoritarianism in China, democratic forms of government still exhibit superiority. All of the numbers and figures presented so far corroborate research findings by World Bank economists that growth is good for the world's poor. Based on a sample of 118 countries over four decades, they conclude that the incomes of the bottom 20% and the bottom 40% generally rise in equal proportion with mean incomes as economic growth proceeds. They postulate that most of the variation in income growth in the poorest quintile 
reflects growth in average incomes rather than changes in the share of incomes accrued among the poorest quintile. No matter what critics might say, economic growth remains the best pro-poor policy in the eyes of policymakers globally. Nevertheless, one might wonder how feasible and ethical this approach is now that the problems of global warming and climate change are beginning to receive more media coverage. Yes, climate change will be a very dangerous problem if we maintain a business-as-usual approach. Many radical voices air the critique that capitalism is simply incompatible with effective climate action and advocate swift anti-growth and decarbonisation actions. But capitalism is malleable and it is possible to reinvent it. Decentralised market mechanisms, such as carbon pricing, tougher regulations and incentivising the research and development of cost-efficient alternative fuels are all possible. After all, CO2 emissions measured in kilograms per unit of GDP, measured in 2011 PPP dollars, have been reduced by a third since 1990. What remains unresolved is the impact of a total increase in CO2 emissions globally. Figure 1.10 shows that CO2 emission spiked by more than 72% over the same period. Addressing a problem of this magnitude requires a combination of public policy and private competition. Hence, developing countries do not need to sacrifice growth and suffer from climate injustice. Clear targets on the part of committed policymakers can transform rational self-interest from a potentially catastrophic force into a powerful driver of beneficial change. In recent times, the EU has set the example, showing that economic growth and CO2 reductions can coexist while having lowered its CO2 emissions by more than 20% since 1990. We also need to invoke a steady decline in emissions of other air pollutants, such as sulphur and nitrogen oxides. In the end, the EU is a normative power and the biggest trading bloc in the world, so it can shape policy choices related to the environment via trade agreements with the rest of the world. The devastating impact of climate change can be mitigated and the well-being of poor people can be ensured. Hence, the right approach lies with light green environmentalists who develop and invest in new technologies. They also create policy solutions conducive to businesses that are eager to solve the complex issues of climate change. After all, capitalism is a complex adaptive and problem-solving system. As opposed to that scenario, the cure offered by dark green environmentalism which is imbued by far-left anti-capitalism, is worse than the disease itself. This agenda is inimical to lifting millions of people from destitution. Besides, increased prosperity enhances the resilience of societies worldwide and enables them to better cope with environmental stresses. You can read more about climate policy in the chapter Combating Climate Change the Liberal Way. After considering the data, and taking the whole world as a reference point, we can easily conclude that we have finally managed to start winning the fight against global poverty, while also improving the state of global distribution of income, as demonstrated in the fourth part of this chapter. Great divergence is not the tale of our times anymore. 
in a remarkable twist of historical events convened by the steady rise of economic and political freedoms across the world, the story of great convergence has taken its place.